Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Accelerator Insider. Um, we explore the minds behind accelerators, incubators, and venture studios, interviewing innovation leaders to learn how they're building businesses for today and for the future. I'm really excited um, to welcome um, Dom. I won't say my name. I won't say Dominique. Dom Einhorn, um, who is the founder and CEO of Unicorn. So hi, Dom. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Dom or Dominique? Yes, uh, you can call me uh, Dom, well, Dominique for ease of use to, for today. <laughs> um, I feel like it's like the uh, brother from another mother. Yeah, <laughs> with, the, with the Dom. Um, and so um, I think, you know, as I said earlier, if someone Googles you, they can see tons of information about you and your background, listen to tons of great podcasts and interviews. So I want to really jump into some more meaty stuff with you because um, they can get that information online. Um, I think the biggest thing to start with is that, you know, you started this in 2018. You are French. You moved back to France um, with a focus on building the world's largest rural incubator accelerator called Unicorn. Uh, just break it down for me. So like why France? Why rural? And then why the world's largest? And how does that come about? Yeah, excellent question. I mean, I was born and raised in France. So I'm at least uh, half French. The other half is of German heritage. Uh, spent uh, most of my career, uh, 25 years in the US on the West Coast in Los Angeles and had the itch for many, many years to come back to Europe, not France in particular. I was uh, born and raised in a small town of 400 souls that has grown over the last uh, 53 years to 650 souls. Uh, so not very big still not very big to uh, most uh, most standards and uh you know when i grew up because i'm old enough to say so there was no internet connection and when i came of adult age there started to be internet i'm not talking 1993 where we had dial-up internet very quickly because i wanted to launch my first startup in france in 1993 i realized it was next to impossible there was no such thing as uh, free local calling when I heard about the U.S. having free local calling, I said, I'm there. You know, I no longer have to pay by the minute, outrageous fees by the minute. I can actually be online 24-7 for a flat monthly fee. Unheard of in France. Obviously, a lot of friction points, most of the audience will probably not be familiar with it. Uh, I think one of the things that we've kind of like taken for granted today is the fact that, you know, we can be connected with anyone in the world for free, 24-7. Okay. For those of us who are old enough, we remember the outrageous long distance calls and how much they used to cost, right? From $3 to two to one to uh, 99 cents uh, per minute to 9.9 .9 cents per minute to 4.9 cents a minute, eventually free. So everything is trending towards free. I think that's a, a trend that's still with us today. I think most importantly, what I wanted to demonstrate is that in this day and age, and in particular in 2018, why do you need to be, even less so in 2023, in a large metropolitan area to launch a digital startup or an ecosystem that houses slash incubates slash accelerates digital startups as long as you've access to, to fiber. Mm -hmm. uh, so France or not France, uh, I have many friends in, uh, in Africa that have uh, thriving digital startups that uh, still have many of the friction points that uh, we've long you know, put behind us in terms of connectivity, the power goes out. I'm working with a, uh, 
a great digital studio in Bangladesh currently. Uh, you know, they have multiple power outages every single day, yet they produce better UI UX than anything I've ever seen. So, you know, that that is kind of like fascinating to me, like, how can you empower large swaths of people, regardless of background, regardless of location, and most importantly, because it did grow up in a small town, you know, why not launch a multi-billion dollar startup potentially in a village of 150 people, no matter where it's located, whether it's in France, in Africa, Latin America, heck, on the moon. This is interesting in general because, I mean, it, it hits across a couple different, I think, narratives. And you're a marketing guy, so a little bit of some narratives around where the best talent is, how to build something, the right way to do something, right? I mean, you're you have a very international perspective. You work with folks from all walks and talks from all over the globe, really looking for like the best opportunity, um, and also building in an environment that is really different from the Silicon Valley's and the New Yorks, right, and things like that. And so. You know, the, was the rural a was it was there like a specific intention about creating some kind of use case or proof point around doing it in a rural location versus doing it in an urban location? Oh, most definitely. Uh, I I think that you know, obviously, for those of you who have raised money before, uh, if you tell even people in 2023 today that uh, you are a group of young uh, you know founders, 20, 22, 23 years old, because I just got off the phone with a couple of them earlier. Uh, and you're located in Miami, they're in Miami. They've raised uh, $3.6 million over the last two years. Uh, no issues whatsoever with their startup. But you take the exact same founders and, and they say they're from Duluth, Iowa, it's going to be a different story. There's definitely going to be on the investor side, of, mm, you know, why there? Why not in Silicon Valley? Why not in New York City? Why not in Los Angeles, Silicon Beach? Or in another, what they, you know, branded thriving ecosystem. Uh, and we see more and more startups, uh, you know, I think the first real big one that shocked people was Skype out mm -hmm. of uh, Scandinavia, out of Sweden, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, obviously was purchased by Microsoft at a multi-billion dollar valuation, but people were shocked. Oh, I didn't, couldn't even relate to the fact that that could have been started outside of the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, it was more of a challenge, you know, and the, like a call to action more than anything like to demonstrate that, yes, it can be done. Yes, it's not going to be easy, but given the right set of tools, there is no reason why you couldn't have great founders anywhere. So the idea was to definitely democratize the startup process. Uh, and, you know, primarily today, again, we work on a global basis. So we, we, we interact with founders from all walks of life, most of them, virtually the vast majority of them, are in remote locations remote being defined as outside the us yeah no i mean that makes a lot of sense more broadly i mean I, I was just looking the other day at um like the top venture cities in the us and really it's just like san francisco palo alto los angeles new york boston and then the rest become global cities and you end up with the miamis and austin's and other things like that but when you kind of see that and then you also get stats that say you know most investors want to invest within like a 60 mile radius of of whatever wherever the ecosystem is you create this kind of by default kind of well maybe not by default on purpose kind of uh elitist narrative that says if you're not here doing this thing with these people you know good luck <laughs> but we don't we yeah. don't really support it right 
And I think one major drawback of that uh, attitude and strategy is that you're not solving the world's problems, right? The, the problems that we're, you encounter, I'm not saying there are no problems in San Francisco, but uh, Lagos, Nigeria probably has more tangible problems that deserve to be solved than San Francisco. Uh, and what you're seeing as a result as well is that you have a lot of luxury type of products and services being developed that don't cater to a true blue human need anymore, right? Such as access to finance, uh, digital, you know, digital banking. I mean, with large swaths of the population around the world that don't have a bank account, most people in the U.S. have a hard time relating to that. So, the the entrepreneur in the U.S. Yes, there are some, fortunately, but would probably not be focused on that. It would be probably you know, come to market with a product that is much more focused on what he deems to be a need. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves the question, is it really a need, a human need, or is it a luxury? Is, do we need another social media app to share our photos, right? When you look at parts of Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, they don't have access to even you know, the most, the biggest, the, the biggest com commodities that we've taken for granted in more yeah. mature markets. Do you think that, so maybe first, like, so have you always had like an international perspective and international bent when it comes to investing and finding opportunities? Um, because what I find is that the U.S. is very good and focused at creating very specific and kind of mm -hmm. Uh, guarded narrative. So right now we're seeing a lot of investment in Nigeria and it's like kind of, it's, it's very specific. It's like, they're not really doing Kenya, right? They're not really, like some of the big guys are, but but most folks aren't. Do you feel like in less of mature, maybe uh, venture ecosystems or investment ecosystems or just global ones that there's just, it's actually easier to do better deals and get better deal flow and more opportunity because it's not under that kind of constraint? I mean, yes. I mean, for one, if you look at the Delta in terms of valuations, I'm talking now pre-seed, seed, series A, between a U.S. deal across the board and a European deal, there is already a major, major delta in terms of valuation. Typically, what we're seeing at pre-seed is three to one hmm. for a deal that's equally structured, has great founders, has some initial traction in terms of you know user use traction, they're onboarding users. Yes, there may still be pre-revenue but they already have a community or they're in the process of building a community. If you compare apples to apples, at the very minimum, two to one, three to one, sometimes as high as five to one, with no logical explanation as to why that is. Hmm. Now, if you go further and you compare some of these deals and you take a US deal compared to a Kenyan, Nigerian, Ugandan deal, Delta, in terms of valuation, is sometimes 10, 20, 30 to one. Now, there obviously are more and more, unfortunately so, investment dollars flowing into those markets. Uh, you know, if, I, if you go back 10 years ago to see a deal in Nigeria getting funded, it was almost unheard of. Now we're seeing more and more, but still the ratio of deals getting funded in the U.S. versus those emerging markets is still, you know, largely skewed towards the U.S. and some other markets, uh, mature markets, uh, rather than emerging economies. 
And I mean, I always think that the U.S. I always say is like, you know, is the consumer of the world, and the challenge is that like Americans can't shoulder the burden of being that consumer anymore with the debt ratios and so on. Like we just can't burden the consumption, right? And so yeah. we. I think we just problems. topped thirty-three billion yesterday. If I if my Bloomberg headline was right this morning. Yeah, yeah. So so you look and say, well, how do you disperse the consumption for for equity and also management, right, of a global economy? And is it sustainable? Yeah. Which is not which we already kind of know that question. Yeah, we know the answer to that. <laughs> which goes back to this what you said earlier, which was around like the idea that um, everything's going closer to free. So how how do we deal with that? Like everything's going closer to free for the, at least for the for the consumer or the citizen. I would try to be like the people first versus the the business term of that uh, for the citizen and the, and the individual. Um, how do businesses really fight against the fact that more and more stuff becomes efficient and commoditized and then eventually becomes free. Um, it moves from it moves from a private sector to a public sector good. How do we how do you think about that? How do you think about how that affects markets in terms of opportunities? Yeah, so I'm not an economist, unfortunately so. Otherwise whatever I would predict would not come true tomorrow. That's <laughs> what you all have in common. I, I don't have a crystal ball either. Yeah. However, what we what we do probably agree on is that everything is trending towards zero in terms of mm -hmm. cost. Mm. The beauty about it, let's look at the positives, is the fact that a lot of the products that used to cost an arm and a leg and a lot of the services are being largely demonetized mm -hmm. and democratized. And those two trends run in parallel, mm -hmm. right? We earlier mentioned long distance calls. Well, if you're today under the age of 35, you're like, what's the long distance call? Well, a long distance call is one that you used to pay for an arm and a leg per minute to make to make to make a phone call today free. If you look at bandwidth, I came across one a, a very old box when I when I moved not too long ago that had a an old bill from a company called Alpha Red in Houston, Texas. I'm not sure if they still exist, but it was my old bandwidth bill from 1998. And it was outrageous. I was paying $8,000 a month for bandwidth. And I did a quick calculation, napkin calculation. Uh, I think the same cost today would be 2 or $3 a month. Oh. So that's how much bandwidth costs have, have dropped dramatically. Uh, obviously, right. it's not even mentioned computing power, right? Uh, uh, Moore's Law, you know, since I believe 1976, where the... Uh, performance of computing doubles every 18 months and halves in price, and we're still on, on track today uh, mm -hmm. to, to see that. Now, the challenges that that brings along as well is that uh, how do you make money in a world where everything is quickly becoming free? Uh, you know, And what we're seeing now is the pace accelerating dramatically as a result of AI. Right. So, so pillars of the economy that are generating GDP. And if we continue to calculate GDP according to the same measures, it will be quickly becoming impossible to calculate GDP because we're not growing anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you, in the past, let's say you're a content production company and you used to have 10, 30, 50 journalists that used to pay, uh, you may still have now five or six content curators that uh, use a number of AI tools, ChatGPT4, GPT4 being maybe one of them. There are some higher performing ones that produce 
pretty good content that still needs human oversight today and maybe not tomorrow how do you deal with that all right if you're a journalist today and two years ago you thought you could uh, outperform gpt3 and then you can came about g 3.5 version 3.5 and like well this looks pretty damn good and then you have four and it makes less at least on the grammar side less mistakes than you do when you write right. you're scratching your head right and the next version we don't even know what to expect i mean you know i saw the new the new version of dali coming coming along i think two or three days ago where you enter prompt of anything in mind could possibly imagine i had a dream last night i was uh cycling on top of the moon can you give me a picture of it and all of a sudden hey it's dumb with a bicycle on top of the moon oh my god it's exactly my dream right that's you know that's what we're dealing with right now so the pace is accelerating more and more democratization of the tools that we have they're all trending faster and faster towards net zero so you have to be more creative you have to create value. You have to be able to, you have to learn to adapt, number one, and you have to learn to leverage those tools, ideally for the good, mm -hmm. right? Because obviously, as we know, there's a double-edged sword with any technology, right? A gun can save a person, gun can kill a person. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most technology tools can can either save lives or, 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 or kill. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think we have, just have to be cognizant of of what's already here and even more cognizant of what's what's about to come and mm -hmm. adapt adaptability is going to play a larger and larger role in our in our capacity to cope with the rate of change yeah i mean i think we all feel very much i mean <laughs> this like kind of the idea of the singularity even though it's very far away mm -hmm. literally but there's a lot of this you know uh the philosophical like it's merging with our reality more pre more presently and we're kind of more aware of like we're making these decisions that they're not these they're not just kind of happenstance they're not they're not happening they're not happening kind of uh without our knowledge we're really trying to become like more present of like oh wait there's there's like a real implication for the decision that i make and how i participate in this world that's evolving rapidly and it's forcing me as a person to evolve physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever, to match that rate of change, which is a really great thing for humans, but also a very painful thing as well. Without a doubt. So I think the book you're probably referencing is Ray Kurzweil, The Singularity is Near, which I think was published in 2005, if my memory serves me right. And in that book, obviously, he talked about uh, human biology merging with technology mm -hmm. and the, the perfect merger between the two, obviously, forming the singularity. Uh, his initial best guess, and he's a good guesser, uh, he's got an amazing track record when it comes to uh, to making those kind of educated guesses, was that the singularity would be with us in 2033, roughly speaking. And uh, one of the last talks I saw I saw from him on the, on the topic, I think it's actually going to be faster than that. I think he's actually revised it, his own schedule. Uh, which everybody told me, you know, it's way too aggressive and this thing will never happen. And whatever you're calling a singularity will never happen. Uh, but the convergence of these breakthrough technologies, we're talking robotics, uh, AI, you know, ubiquitous bandwidth, uh, they're all converging and becoming one mega trend, one mega technology that all of us, again, being democratized, if you go back to the 80s, the 90s, in 2000s, in order to have access to the best technology, 
cost you an arm and a leg. Today, you can be a kid in the middle of the Sahara Desert and you have access to more technology than Bill Clinton had when he was president of the United States for free. Right. The world is the world has changed fundamentally. Right. The, the fundamental shift. We're not even talking in the same terms we were talking before. I think sometimes we forget that, like, our literal language around things has shifted. And so our reality has also shifted in part. And so we kind of think we're still in the 90s. We think we're in the 2000s. But we're really, you know, we're in a different moment. It's a, it's a, and we're kind of coming to terms with that real time. And, I, I you know, you have. As, you know, I saw your background and you've done a lot of work in marketing and, and I, I definitely want to get some of the work that you've been also doing currently. Um, so I, I'm assuming that 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 gives you a particular lens in how you think about narrative, how you think about story, how you think about how the future is being crafted. And I'd love to kind of know for you, how have you used that lens to kind of perceive or kind of identify opportunities? Because you're really able to kind of cut through the noise because you have that ability to understand the layers of narrative. Um, how has that impacted kind of how you see the world or how you look for new deals, or how you build things for yourself? Yeah, I think what's interesting is that obviously we all built upon our experiences, good or bad. Right? And we all have good and bad experiences. We all live them every single day. And as a result of those experiences, we shape a reality that can be a thwarted reality, or that can actually be a reflection of what's really going on, right? If you're an entrepreneur, your objective is to solve problems, is to create products and services that solve a problem that you believe is prevalent in parts of the world or in the entire world. The older you get as an entrepreneur as well, or as an investor, you're become more and more concerned, maybe because it's our biology, our clock that's ticking about the legacy that you want to leave behind and the imprint that you want to leave behind once you're no longer here. Because I think we all want to be immortal, whether we agree to that or not, whether we are transhumanists or not, uh, nothing against transhumanists. I'm, I'm probably half one, right? Uh, I don't necessarily want my biology to be around and get decrepit over the next two or 300 years. But, you know, I'd certainly like to have something left that people can touch, interact with and say, wow, you know, this was created by Dom, right? That would be pretty cool, uh, <laughs> right? I, I think a lot, a lot of people are like me when it comes to that, right? Not much, but wow, every once in a while you come across a little, little trinket and say, wow, you know, this was built by Dom, it's pretty cool. So being motivated by a number of things one of the first things that motivated me, and it goes back to a story that always stuck with me when I first went to the United States from, from France. Again, growing up in rural France, I moved to the US at age 23. I'm with a friend, a friend who was my strength coach at that point in time in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I take out the trash. First thing that shocked me is like, oh my God, the size of the trash can. It's like four times the size of what we have in France. What is people throwing away? It's full. So I open up the trash, I throw out our throw our trash in the trash can and say, well, there's a Barbie doll in there. What's wrong with it? So I pull it out. I can't find anything wrong. I push a button on the back. It starts talking to me. I'm like, why do people throw this away? It's perfectly working. If they don't like it, they could give it to another kid or maybe like put it into a nonprofit organization that, that replaces it. So there's this waste really stuck with me. The size of the trash can, 
And now I understand why the trash can is so big because people throw things away that clearly shouldn't be thrown away, right? Obviously, notion of recycling, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that, that waste, that idea of waste stuck with me for a long, long time, right? Uh, which also made me very interested in obviously environmental projects and what you can do to 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 reduce overconsumption. I mean, I know we're living in a consumer society. I have a lot of trinkets myself, many of which I probably shouldn't have, but sometimes it's overdone, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have the haves and the have-nots. Now, I grew up as somewhat of a have-not, and I always was shocked by what some other people had, even more so when we went to the US, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, not only do they drive cars, man, they drive Hummers, Why, you know, one person in a Hummer doesn't even have family, why? What does he need? What is he carrying around? He probably has a big business and he's got a, you know, some stuff to lug around. No, 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 there's nothing. The car is empty, right? And it does eight miles per gallon with the H1 at that point in time. So I think a lot of those stories, because when you're a storyteller and you're a marketer, you have to be a storyteller, but those stories are ingrained in our subconscious mind and we carry those along. They shape who we are, they shape our persona. And as a result of shaping our persona, they also shape our perception of the world and the way we basically look outward as entrepreneurs or investors is that becomes an expression of who we are and the products or services that we do develop are that expression. So at age 53 today, I'm no longer the kid I was when I was 23. Clearly, none of us are. So I have a different lens. You know, I mean, this lens is not as sharp anymore. Uh, hopefully the other lens is a little sharper than it was when I was 23. And I'm looking at the world right now and I see problems, maybe not as crass as they used to be, but still a lot of them, such mm -hmm. as access to healthcare, access to education, access to energy, because, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I work with people who are great entrepreneurs or budding entrepreneurs and everyone said, well, I'm on with them on a conversation like this one. And it was black mm -hmm. because they had a power outage. And I already know now, initially it was shocking, right? Did I say something you didn't like? I know it was a power outage, mm -hmm. right? So there are still a lot of problems that we need to solve as, mm -hmm. as entrepreneurs. And one thing I don't like is that in developed economies, we're again, focusing on a lot of luxury types of product services mm -hmm. and somewhat ignoring the fact that there are still people in need and there are still a very, very large opportunity to have a net positive impact on mm -hmm. people's lives, on animals' lives, on the environment that serves us all. Mm -hmm. uh, education, obviously, is one of the first things that comes to that comes to mind, right? Yeah. Uh, we're not just going to overnight plug in our, you know, our brains, connect them to the cloud and have access to human knowledge. I mean, obviously that's, that's underway, right? right? That will, that will happen. Right. And the rate, the rate of adoption of any new technology, if you look at how long it took to adopt a cell phone, right? We all yeah. remember the old cell phones. It's an actually a perfect analogy when it comes to democratization and, 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 and trending towards free. Mm. The cell phone that Gordon Gecko had in the movie Wall Street, he was yeah. carrying it around in a briefcase. His calls would drop all the time. Right. It was very heavy, looked like a brick, right. and he had to be a billionaire to afford it. And right. It never worked. Then the calls 
became cheaper, the phones became smaller, no more briefcase, hmm. right? Now you have earbuds on and you can talk for free as long as you want all day long and everybody has them, and the calls never drop and it's free. Yep. So that's kind of the logical progression of any technology, right? Hmm. If we're looking at the rate of adoption of social media, even faster, that pace keeps accelerating. Every time there is a new breakthrough technology, if you look at ChatGPT, I think it took two months to have 100 million users on ChatGPT mm-hmm. just by word of mouth. They didn't spend a single dime on advertising. Right. It was a breakthrough technology, still is obviously, and all of a sudden everybody jumped on and feeding the machine and making that machine smarter. Yeah. And hopefully that machine will help us resolve a lot of problems that we still have today. Right. No, I mean, it's a great point. I mean, I talked to you for hours about this, <laughs> so, but I think there's a, I mean, I think you bring up ton of really good points, which I think actually may be a good segue into Unicorn and kind of how you're approaching it, uh, you know, is enough, you have a couple of things going on. So I'd love to kind of just get like the brass tacks of like what it is, how it works. You have it labeled as an incubator accelerator, like what that actually kind of means. And then just to throw that in here, um, you also have this like, affiliate directory. So I wanted to kind of see like, maybe you could just talk us through high level, like who should, apply, who should participate in this? Why would they want to? What do you guys offer? The whole thing. Yeah, again, going back to solving problems, right? That's kind of like the, the, the core motto behind all of the initiatives that we, that we have. Uh, the incubator accelerator, I think they go hand in hand. I mean, obviously, a lot of people segregate the two. Uh, in our case, because we're so hands-on, we're not, we're, not, we're not just investing, right? We're very much involved specifically on the marketing side and the customer acquisition side. If an idea gets incubated, and mm-hmm. most people probably understand what an incubator is, for those that don't, think about the hospital incubators. The baby is born, maybe still too weak, needs to be put into an incubator so it can survive. We still do quite a, quite a bit of that, right? Mm-hmm. To make sure that a, an idea that has potential, that has traction, can survive and graduate to the next level. If it does, it goes into the accelerator. Usually the accelerator, what we identify are startups that have a core need for customer acquisition. That's what we specialize in. That's mm-hmm. what we've been doing for almost 30 years. Mm-hmm. So anything from SEO, search engine optimization to ASO, app store optimization, if they're primarily a mobile play, to PR, IR, public relations, investor relations, uh, paid media, you know, mm-hmm. with the idea being acquire a new customer at the lowest cost possible. Right. So that's a lot of experience, uh, a lot of connections that come into play that we put at the disposal of the uh, of the startups that we work with. We also have our own projects that we incubate and accelerate. Uh, and that's kind of like us wearing a lot of hats because initially we were startup entrepreneurs. Then over the years, we became investors. Mm-hmm. But you always have that itch. Right. And you always also ask yourself, and I, I guess I know a lot of athletes. Uh, and they they have that same itch. Can I still do it? Mm. Right. I'm 40 years old. Could I still play a game? Whether it's football, rugby, whatever it is, the rugby world cup going on right now. Mm. Entrepreneurs were the same way, right? So if you had an early exit like I did when I was 29, 30 years old, can I still do it at 53? Well, actually, if I look at the data, the data in, seems to indicate that I have much higher chance of actually succeeding in my 50s than I did back in my 20s. But if you look at the headlines, you'd think it's impossible, right? Mm-hmm. You need to be 23 in order to be to be a successful digital entrepreneur. 
Hmm. That's if you believe the headlines, the clickbait headlines. Okay. The, the facts are completely different. The, you know, the people with the highest success rates, the people with obviously experience, with the knowledge, with the network, with the connections, uh, people have failed many, many times, right? Because unless you actually tasted failure, if you taste it for the first time, you may give up. But if you have failed as many times as I have, and other people in my situation, you're like, just, you know, get back up the next day and, you know, move on to something else or, or adjust or pivot, right? Well, you did talk a little bit, I've heard about um, in some of the other podcasts about your, about the need and also your personal kind of ability to manage risk and just resiliency. And, and I think I, I saw you talking about um, this idea of uh, Shinrin Yoku or forest bathing. Yeah, um, interesting. <laughs> is that is that one of your techniques to like? You know, I'm not you so sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not so sure it's a technique. It's something I stumbled upon. So uh, the little town of 400 souls I mentioned and where where I grew up in uh, is right next. It's like one kilometer or so, three quarters of a mile from the largest forest in France. Mm. So. I always used to go fishing. It was a river that right, right, runs through the forest as, as a kid, probably three, four times a week. And then I moved to the US and kind of like lost touch with that and moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, initially, as I mentioned. And there's not a single tree there aside from some palm trees that look pretty, right? So I always missed the forest. I always loved trees. And lo and behold, if you look at uh, not the, one of the primary ways of how Japanese people work on reducing blood pressure, hypertension, is via what they call forest bathing. Japanese term is Shenrin Yoku for that. Mm -hmm. I've always, without knowing the science behind it, it's, it is science. It's demonstrated as highly, highly successful against a number of ailments in the Japanese culture. But I knew nothing about it as a kid. I just knew that I felt a lot better in the forest fishing than sitting on my couch, right? So I kind of came back to my uh, to my roots and I studied Shinrin Yoku, read a couple of books about it and like, wow, it was mind boggling, right? I, I read all these uh, scientific case studies of people suffering from depression, from hypertension, all sorts of ailments. And they were able to get cured just by spending a half an hour to an hour in the forest and sometimes touching trees the specialists will advise against hugging trees because yes, there can be some bugs that can come onto you and whatnot, but touching trees, put your hands against a big, a big oak tree, uh, and, and feel, you know, feel nature with your bare hands has some significant health benefits. So yeah, you know, I'm in the forest at least once a day. Listen, I'm with, I'm from New Hampshire originally. Oh, um, spoiled. So that, yeah, even though I wasn't in the woods, but we had was behind us. Um, and it's funny, and now I live in LA, and you know, you see all these things coming out about grounding or earthing, which is just like put your bare feet on the ground, take off the yeah. rubber, and feel the earth. Um, and I go to the beach right across the street from me, and I sit every morning with my feet in the sand, right? And it's just and really where cool. where in LA? I'm in Marina del Rey. I lived in Marina del Rey. I lived in the uh, Marina City Club between 1998 oh. and 2001. Oh, nice. Well, then we technically were neighbors. Yeah, I'm, I'm right across from Mother's Beach. The little... I know exactly where that is. And uh, I remember next to the Marina City Club, there was a, uh, is a California Pizza Kitchen or... Uh... Yeah, it's still there. <laughs> Probably is. <yeah. laughs> Hilarious. 
<laughs> yeah. So that, that, but, but if it, you don't realize until you, until you don't have it or do have it, the impact fundamentally, you know, after a long time of not, of always having sneakers on in a city, you're like, wait, I don't, I don't feel connected. Right. And then all of a sudden you, you do that once or twice. You're like, Oh, that, that grounding. Right. It's so, yeah. it's so important. Um, yeah. So I think I want to talk a little bit about um, really kind of what you're working on, honestly. Uh, so it's really interesting. And so you're launching a new company. So to your point, um, kind of round two or three or four <laughs> or many more. Um, and this one is called Masters of Trivia. So I just wanted to give you the floor on like why this and kind of also why now do you think it's a good idea to, to relaunch this? Yeah, I think I think a why now is even more interesting because it is the second iteration of a project that I had launched in the mid 2000s between 2006 and 2008. So right before the event of the first iPhone. Uh, for those BlackBerry users over there, you know what the interface looked like. So nobody, nobody actually was able to play any games on mobile. They were all web-based games in, in those years. We had developed a large ecosystem that was uh, trivia and quiz-based uh, that had attracted uh, close to a million users within 18 months. And at that point in time, our Achilles heel was content production because it cost an arm and a leg for writers in multiple languages to produce those quizzes by hand. Mm. Uh, so we kind of like broke even. Uh, so, some months were in the black, some months were in the red, uh, but it was a lot of work and kind of we kind of like shelved the, uh, the idea. Already back then, I felt like it was my baby. Uh, I'm a huge trivia fan because it's reflective of who I am, uh, how I grew up. Uh, being immersed into different languages, into different cultures, which a lot of people born and raised in the northeast of France with the proximity of the German, the Swiss, the Italian, the Belgian, the Dutch borders, we all are to a certain extent. Uh, yeah, so I was always fascinated by, you know, as a marketer, by what could be done and what I consider to be on the most granular level the most flexible content unit which is a question mm -hmm. with an answer so if mm -hmm. you're a content marketer and you make a living as a content marketer typically what you have to do is you have to produce a lot of content and excellent content for that content to be read and interacted with so content first and then Assuming you can produce excellent content, assuming you can amass a large enough audience, can you pitch advertisers mm -hmm. that may want to subsidize that effort? Mm -hmm. No matter how you slice it, it's a very difficult value proposition. Yeah. And there's a tremendous amount of people and large funded, you know, well-funded companies out there back in the days, bus fees of the world, a lot less today, uh, that basically could eat your lunch. Right. Yes, you can still make a living as a blogger. I guess you can obviously make a living as an influencer, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of them, a very, very minute fraction that make millions of dollars. And there are millions of them that make less than one dollar. Right. Mm -hmm. So what we were looking at as a team is the ability to leverage this unit of content, which is a unit of knowledge. If you're mm -hmm. assuming that you can ask a trivia question and there is an answer to it, mm -hmm. a factual answer, right? 
you ask when Lincoln was born, well, you can give three or four different options, but only one is going to be the right one because it's factual. There's no mm -hmm. opinion in it whatsoever. That was one thing. Uh, and we wanted to create a platform in any language in the world where people could come, engage into a game, hence mm -hmm. our tagline, knowledge gamified. So knowledge mm -hmm. comes first, the game comes second, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And be ent entertained and be able to play. If you're a Lakers fan in Los Angeles, you can play your Laker, a Lakers quiz. If you're a hardcore Lakers fan, you can be, depending on, your, on, the, on the level, you know, if you entry level to a very advanced one, and we're going to ask you a lot more difficult questions. Uh, if I ask, for example, most people on this podcast today, who is the mayor of Hamburg? It's not going to resonate with them. It's no interest, right? Hamburg, Germany. But if I ask somebody in Hamburg, they better know the answer who who the, who the mayor is, right? So you have all these facets taken into consideration. But the core value proposition is to democratize, using that term again, probably overusing it now, access to these units of knowledge that are neatly packaged up into quizzes mm -hmm. that anyone from anywhere using any device, using any type of speed of connection, doesn't have to be a gigabit connection, fiber connection, it could be a 3G mobile phone, uh, ideally even a feature phone that still exists in, in, some, in some parts of the world, and come to this community, engage with the community, become part of the community, and regardless of who you are, where you are, what language you speak, you can acquire an education by playing a game about any topic that may be of interest to you. So the challenge today is quite different than it was back in 2006, 2007, 2008, is that how can we create this huge library of content fast enough on one side? And on the other side, how can we actually make, build a valuable business out of it? Mm. The solution, obviously, the, what, what brings both, both sides together, the supply and the demand side, you know, mm. very much like another ecosystem, like an Uber and Airbnb, if you only have drivers and no writers, you have a problem. If you only have writers and no drivers, you have a problem. Same with hosts and Airbnb and, and people who want to stay there. So you always have to keep a balance between the supply and the demand. In our scenario, we need to have enough supply of content. Content comes first still. But the trivia content, the quiz content is much easier to create because it's factual. Mm -hmm. And it can be, to a large degree, automated today with mm -hmm. some fact checking. So you can go to GPT-4 today and you can basically prompt it properly, train it on your, on your project and say, okay, give me a 15 question, multiple choice question and answer quiz on the uh, Las Vegas Raiders in the 1980s, focus on this, focus on that, take an, auth an authoritative tone, take an entertaining tone, speak to me like a sports journalist, etc. Boom, here it is. Now you have a human curator to make sure that it's actually fact-checked, that everything is fine, make some adjustments, export that quiz directly into a game, which is the bridge that we're working on right mm -hmm. now, uh, that we hope to have resolved before Christmas, mm -hmm. and then offer this game using tried through and proven uh, digital marketing strategies to the largest number of people in the world. Uh, we have a crazy objective. Uh, that I mentioned to you before this call. Uh, within five years, we want to be able to offer our games to a billion people around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so we want to be the candy crush for knowledge. 
right? I'm not knocking Candy Crush. We used to have them as a client. Uh, but I think it would be nice that if people could actually interact with a casual game, when I say people from all walks of life, you know, it could be a teenager, uh, 12, 14 years old, to someone who is 95 years old uh, with a tablet, you know, mm -hmm. my mom, you know, at first she was afraid of the iPad and now she's using it religiously. She doesn't, you know, there's something up with it and she needs an update. And first person that she calls, there's something wrong with my iPad. At first she didn't want to touch it. So, you know, she is 84 now. She should be able to interact with it just as easily as someone who is very well versed in, in, in modern technology. Hmm. So that's kind of like, you know, from a legacy perspective, what we discussed earlier, what as an entrepreneur, as an as well as an investor, I would like to leave behind something mm -hmm. that, you know, if you pull out an old box, like a Scrabble box, you know, wow, who's the guy in the Scrabble? Do I see a Scrabble behind you somewhere there? A Scrabble yeah. box? I think <laughs> no, I love that. And, and so, <laughs> well, we have a couple of folks uh, listening and, and watching. So if you have questions, please drop them in. I'm going to continue, but just wanted to call that out for folks. Sometimes they kind of listen in, in the background, but feel free to ask questions as well. Um, so I want to dig into this. You said a lot of things, but there's there's just like this underpinning that I want to kind of just maybe use a lot of right now unearth, I guess, and, and talk about. So at the core of this, there's two ideas that bubble up to me. One is the idea of like mastery. So learning something enough that you become kind of a master in it, right? These kind of units of measure are, are micro, right? Micro learning is a huge space and there's a whole bunch of uh, learning development work that's been done around like how people learn to understand and absorb information and so on and so forth. Um, so I'm hearing like there's this mastery conversation and then there's this fundamental, like, how people learn or how people can learn new information or acquire information quickly. And I just wanted to pressure test, like, are those underpinnings of this idea? Or is it really just like, this is really just for fun and like joy and like to make learning fun again, because it was fun for me as a kid and I want to be fun again for people. And I feel like that's not happening or some, something of that nature. It's an excellent question. Uh, I think one of the core motivators, so... The short answer is definitely some of these underpinnings, they do exist. Mm -hmm. So I obviously, when your parents get older, you're concerned about dementia. My my mentor in my life was my maternal grandmother, who uh, was a World War II resistant, had a lot of GIs living in our, in our, in our house uh, during World War II and uh, ended up contracting Alzheimer's disease and dying of Alzheimer's. And that, for me, marked me, right? Mm -hmm. still marks me today. Uh, then there's this amazing Netflix documentary that uh, looks at uh, Alzheimer's patients mm -hmm. that have become vegetables. They don't react to anything anymore. You put a headset onto them and you play the music from their childhood years or from their, from their 20s and they start dancing. Mm -hmm. It just awakens the brain mm -hmm. instantly. So part of what we want to do is we want to segregate the user base and be able to offer learning games to the kids, developmental games to the adolescents, fun games for people who just want to be entertained. Yes, you should be able to play movie trivia. Why not, right? You should be able to quickly find a quiz on your favorite movie. You should be able to name that tune, you know? Is it educational? Well, it's at the fringe, right? But it's mostly entertaining. And then also, and I think that's one thing that 
it's a frustration that I've lived for many, many years is that we tend to develop all the new products that we tend to develop tend to ignore older people. Mm-hmm. When in fact, when you look at the demographic shift, it's the biggest opportunity of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say older people, myself included, now I'm older than I was yesterday. We don't want to necessarily get older. Mm-hmm. Uh, where chronologically we can accept it. Yeah. I just check another year off, but I don't want my brain. I don't want to become old and decrepit. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do I actually maintain the mental awareness and what tool do I have that can keep me sharp on any topic? So I can actually have a conversation with a 20 year old uh, when I'm 80. Right. And the 20 year old is going to look at me. He's like, wow, grandpa is pretty sharp. Right. It's pretty amazing. How does he know that? Well, maybe, he, maybe he's playing masters of trivia. Yeah. Right. So we definitely want to take some of that into consideration. Uh, I've also had a number of con- conversations with uh, with psychologists, uh, senior psychologists, etc. So I'm uh, still learning process, but I'm becoming more and more aware as to what kind of challenges that they face from a psychology perspective with a with a, an older an older population, and how maybe we can avert some of that by keeping the brain stimulated and mm-hmm. entertained. And there's obviously a tremendous amount of data uh, behind that. Uh, train, you know, just general hygiene, mental training exercises for senior citizens that if they play them even five to 10 minutes a day, they stay sharp pretty much for forever. Yeah. And that's, that's very much at the core of what we want to build as well. Can we talk a little bit about the business model? Because you mentioned a couple things now in this, even reading the site that are like interesting things to call out around the structure of how you want to operate. So you talked a bit about, um, the access right being able to access it no matter where you are and we talked a little bit earlier about kind of um kind of this what i think of ubiquitous wi-fi right through all the different uh uh, satellites in the air and all this different stuff being able to have kind of this access that seems like to be a core tenant the unit of measure being micro that's kind of a, a a play on kind of maybe perhaps like user behavior and social content. And and so like, is there like a three-legged stool model here that you're trying to like, that you're building around for the business? Or like, what do you think those core tenants kind yeah. of are? Yeah, so obviously we have pretty good idea as to what the business model will look like because we had our first run at this model before. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I can tell you right now is that from an advertiser perspective, it's a dream come true. Mm-hmm. Why is it a dream come true? Because if you are an advertiser, regardless of what you're promoting or selling, whether product or service, whether it's a travel timeshare or a, a rivet for your for your car, mm-hmm. you're looking for the most targeted user who may have an interest in what it is that you're selling. Basic psychology, right? Basic sales mm-hmm. psychology. And where do they congregate, these people? How can I reach them? Hence, Google AdSense. Uh, Google Ads, sorry, uh, Bing Ads, not Microsoft Ads, the ability to micro-target a user population on a keyword-specific basis. I think what we're building provides content and context, perfect content, perfect context that allows for a perfect match between the buy and the sell side. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if, let's just take one example, I can very quickly with my team, create a quiz on any topic in any language under the sun and turn it live much faster from a content production perspective than any other content module like a 
short or long form article, like a engaging YouTube video, which is going to take a lot longer and cost a lot more. And that quiz or the question within the quiz is much more targeted towards the user intent than anything else. So take an example. Let's say I want to sell streaming rights to a new TV show, Paramount Plus, Netflix, whoever may be streaming it. What better way to do so than to a person who has just played, who's a hardcore fan, who has just played a 15 or 20 question quiz about that TV series that I may have seen the first two iterations, the first or the first season, and now the second season. Welcome to Rexon, right? Perfect example. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, first season, amazing for sports fans. You got Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney who buy a whale, a fledgling soccer club in, in, in Wales, fifth or sixth division, uh, invest quite a bit of money and basically develop it. And the entire time comes, town comes alive and amazing storytelling. And now season two just came out. Everybody was in anticipation of that. Now, I could construct a quiz about season one. Mm -hmm. First of all, anybody who would be playing that quiz obviously has watched season one, has a knowledge about it. And then, boom, here's your results. And now you have a link to purchase season two. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by content and context, mm -hmm. right? So back in the early 2000s, the rage was contextual advertising. Mm -hmm. In other words, how can you, as an advertiser, put your message in the perfect vicinity? Uh, the, the, the issue back then already was there was a burgeoning industry with UGC user-generated user content. And mm -hmm. how can you, as a brand, make sure that you're not going to be displayed alongside objectionable content? Yeah. It still, a certain, to a certain degree, exists today. Although there are filters, there's AI that can pretty much zap it out very, very quickly. But there's still a risk today, and it can do more harm than good for a brand. Mm -hmm. But in our scenario, what what our objective is from a business model perspective is to have a perfect match between user interest and the advertiser looking to reach that user with that interest. And there is nothing better, nothing more targeted. Than a quiz to do that. Hmm. That's a really good. That's a thank you for sharing. That. That's a very good insight. I think about um, the, I, you know, when I work with founders, I talk a, a lot about kind of even at the MVP level, like having kind of a really specific value proposition that ma that matches the customer, like just one to one. Like you don't need to have five to one. It needs to be like one thing that you can build a file around that's super sticky, that's straightforward, that that meets the need that they have, and nothing beyond that. Right to kind of initiate. Yeah, and not, and not to mention the viral effect. Obviously, we're going to have one-to-one -one battles, multiplayer. Right. So if I, if 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 I'm again going back to the example of the the welcome to Wrexham fan, hardcore fan, he just plays this. First thing he's going to do is share this quiz with his five sporting buddies, ten sporting buddies on WhatsApp or whatever he's using to share it, and they're going to play it again as well because yeah. he wants to see how they scored right yeah. on, on on that game. So the viral effect and the ability to to widen the circle of influence on that granular topic is is bar none. Right. It's like, and, and I think that's the thing that folks oftentimes are missing is like, what is you're tapping into human behavior and what's the sticky human behavior that lets it be easily shareable? Because that's really how you know word of mouth is still the basically number one way things get sold. And and so, I, 
understanding that sometimes I think it'd be hard for folks who want to build really, really big, but they kind of want to skip the first step, which is like, what's where I mean the need that's super exciting for the for the buyer that makes them want to share, right? Like yeah, it's it's not it's not a, it's not only the best method of uh, of marketing. It also has by by far hands down the highest conversion ratio. Yeah. Right. If I tell you know, if I tell Dominique right now. Look, and we've known each other for 10, 15 years. Oh my God, I just saw this movie. You have to watch it. Yeah. You're going to do it. If you tell me the same thing, you know, it happens all the time. You have, I mean, that's how I actually learned about Welcome to Rexham. you got to watch the series. What is it about? Okay, give me a brief thing. I'm on it the same night, right? Yeah. Because that the trust from the person who told me carries over to me. And that can be replicated in the content marketing space via quiz that has such granularity to its interest level but even though if we were just looking at the way people communities are being built online these days and how granular they are if you're a, a fan of fly fishing well fly fishing is actually not even a micro market anymore but uh, fly fishing in northwestern montana you're still going to get a million and a half people interested in that topic and joining that community because right. that's where we can give it get the best the best rainbow trout right right so that's actually what we're going to and you know back in the days we're going back 20 years you were lucky to find a fly fishing community online but now you can go drill down all the way to the nitty-gritty to find people that have the exact same interest no matter how bizarre or how you know how granular that topic is and join that community for good, for good or bad, right? <laughs> it, it, in our case, hopefully for the good, because obviously we're going to be uh, separating the wheat from the chaff and making sure that uh, that we're producing quality content that uh, can contribute to to educating people while while entertaining them. I mean, I think you're spot on. I think that the day I realized that was I had two moments of realization. The first was I was randomly looking at YouTube and I saw this whole category of people who like reenact like living in the 1800s and like making meals. And I was like, this is a thing. Like, this is a thing thing. <laughs> and like, there's like millions of people who do this and right. watch this. And I was like, wow. And like the next week I'm like doing something else. And I see this whole cadre of folks who are like into water bottles. And I'm like, these niches are like, like who's buying yeah. five water bottles, but people are right. And so all of a sudden yeah. there's a and lot. You know, and actually going back to what we initially discussed, it's the democratization and the demonetization of uh, anything media, in this particular case, social media that made this happen. Yeah. Because if you go back 20 years, people didn't know. They they, they thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm so weird. I like collecting whatever it is, you know, bottle caps, right? And lo and behold, you know, because now you can communicate, wow, there's a billion people like me, right? I, I had no idea. I'm not so special after all. Which, which is important because it, it's, it changes your mindset when you have, particularly I'm sure for younger people who feel like, oh, I don't know if I should do this or I'm nervous or whatever. It's like, no, everybody's doing it. Actually, there's a tribe for everything. And so this whole narrative of like you should or should not, or like there's this, you know, there's this idea of what it looks like to do the right thing or the wrong thing or the good thing or the bad thing, you know, kind of separate of kind of some other moral questions. But there's like, oh, there's actually a lot here that actually we can all participate in because it's not just you. You're not alone in that thing. There's tons. I always laugh. I'm like, everyone is like, I'm living off grid. I'm like, there's probably 500,000 of you now in Alaska. You're just all neighbors living off grid. Like you're not off grid anymore. There's probably That's all right. of you out there living in the same area together because there's so many of you. I think 
what used to be to your point kind of the oddball is now like oh that's the norm actually yeah, mainstream. If, if i if i if i'm normal by 2000 standards i'm probably the oddball now yeah literally literally so um we are at time i have one question for you to close this out because i i thought it was, I was so interesting and i i wanted to make sure we talk about it particularly for folks who nowadays we see a lot of founders who social impact is a core part of their value proposition, whether that's with energy or climate um, or kind of social issues, that they think of it um, as part of a core part of their, their, their business model and their structure. And they also want to make profits, but they also want to make um, impact at the same time and they're not divergent. And you had something on your site that was really interesting called, uh, you had our massive transformative purpose, MTP. So I'd never heard this term before. I wanted to know kind of when you heard it and like, why did you apply this versus maybe like a theory of change or a mission, vision, values or something else like that? So I can't take credit for it. Uh, you can look him up. His name is Peter Diamandis. Mm -hmm. He is the uh, founder of the X Prize Foundation, as well as the Singularity University, where Ray Kurzweil, mm -hmm. uh, who coined the term. Uh, it was immediately fascinating to me, and uh, I, I, I probably read all of his books as well as Ray Kurzweil's and the best friends, uh, because it uh, literally shook me in my core in terms of what are we here for? What do we want to accomplish? How can we accomplish it? How do we leave a legacy? He kind of like literally encompassed everything that I had ever dreamed of as, a, as an entrepreneur and it, that was representative of how I feel as a person in one term, MTP, Massive Transformative Purpose. In other words, to sum it, sum it up, to define it is like, what makes you get up in the morning? Mm -hmm. Like, if you didn't have to make a living, what would you do getting up in the morning? And how can you translate that? How can you have, leave a legacy, have an impact on as many people, ideally a billion plus in this world, out of the eight, right? Percentage-wise, it actually doesn't seem that far-fetched anymore now, right? How can I leave a positive impact on as many people as possible, ideally a billion plus, right? Whatever it is, what that is, right? Maybe you want to teach a music and maybe you figure out how to build a platform to teach everybody to play an instrument. Uh, maybe it is something where you can actually figure out how to eradicate people who can't sleep at night with by singing a lullaby, right? That goes viral, whatever that is. And one of his things that also is, is fascinating to me is that, you know, and you hear this a lot, hence the term unicorn. By the way, my last name, Einhorn, means unicorn in German. Oh. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a big pun when I go to German tech conferences. They asked me when did I, when did I change my last name? Uh, right. I, I, I was actually born with it. But one of uh, the core tenets of uh, Peter Diamandis's philosophy about the business and entrepreneurship is that if you want to become a billionaire, very simple formula, help a billion people or more, right? Because if you can truly help a billion people, if you look at anybody who has done this, any enterprise, any business has ever done that, they have multi-billion dollar valuations. You know, don't worry about how you're going to make money. Don't worry about your business model, business model. If you can actually accomplish that, you will become a de facto billionaire. There's no question about it. So, yes. So, I mean, that's, you know, the duality between having... I guess what we call net social impact and making money because without if you don't make any money it's very very difficult to have an impact right uh if you want to be 
part of an association, uh, nonprofit organization, et cetera, a part of a charity, right? You got to be able to raise money. Without that, it's very next. Yes, you can donate your time clearly, right? And that has uh, an impact, but time is money as well. So there is a conversion rate there somewhere between the amount of time that you invest and uh, and and the money you would have earned by doing something else. So at the end of the day, it is money. Hmm. Well, that that was wonderful. I mean, I talked to you for hours, but um, thank you so much, uh, Dom, for your time today um, on Accelerated Insider. For folks who you guys are watching, you have questions of the follow-up, feel free to reach out to acceleratorinsider at gmail.com. Um, we'll put all the notes and all the everything else in, as we send out the updates. Um, but wanted to say thank you again for watching Accelerated Insider, and we'll see you on the next one. So bye, guys. Thank you.